sermon text tonight is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Luke 3, 1 to 14. If you're new to the Bible, you should be able to find a Bible under the seat in front of you or near you. And you can find the passage that we'll be looking at tonight on page 858. Luke 3, 1 to 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Thank you, Scott. So the microphone that we usually use is actually misplaced, so I'm just going to use this one. And before I begin, I just have a couple of announcements also. <laughs> the first one is that we actually have a prayer gathering after our meal together right back in here that will last until 8.30 p.m. So please, um, if you're able to, stick around and pray with us. That would be a great blessing. The other thing I just wanted to mention is that I guess I dressed up a little more than I usually do to preach. And there isn't anything special about today. I'm just trying to grow into being myself as being a preacher, and I thank you for your patience with me as, <laughs> as you listen each week to my sermons. And I just thought to myself, hey, what would I wear? I didn't care what anyone else thought. And this is it, so that's, that's all this is about. <laughs> and I just want to share a quick story before I get into our text. Got to be with my parents over Christmas. It was a great time. Two of my cousins came over. And we um, were just able to hang out and spend some time together. And I was interacting with one of my cousins. And she's a person who can be tough for me to connect with. I really want to connect with everyone. I don't know if any of you have that inclination. And I couldn't quite get through. She has some walls, some barbs. She has a, a, a tough past. And I didn't realize it at the time, but my heart had become frosty towards her, I think. And a few days later, when I was out for dinner with my parents, I blurted out something about her that lacked compassion. So my, my heart showed up when I wasn't expecting it to show up. And once that happened, I, what I had to do was to repent, which is what we all need to do when we sin. And I'm going to get into more of what it means to repent. But essentially, I had to acknowledge what I did was wrong and, and turn from doing that anymore. And I'm thankful that I repented at that moment because 
it's not always easy to repent when we hurt other people. And sometimes it's hardest to repent when the person we've sinned against is God. And we want to hide from him. We don't want him to see us. We don't want to repent from him or to him. Here are some of the reasons that we might not repent to God. We may love our sin just too much, and we don't want to let it go. We may dread facing him, and it is easier to just keep running away. Or we may just feel stuck, and we don't know what to do. So as we listen to God's word, as we come under its authority, as God gives us life through his word this evening, I want to answer the question, what should we do when we know we should repent, and we just can't for some reason. It's just hard. We're, we're stuck. What do we do in those moments? All right, please turn your attention to Luke chapter 3. At this point in the story, Jesus has been born. John the Baptist has been born. Jesus has grown up, and he fast forwards several years until now Jesus and John the Baptist are adults. The whole two chapters, 30 years unfolds. Now in the next 21 chapters, three years are going to unfold. These are going to be the three most consequential years in world history as Jesus begins his public ministry. And, and what, what we have here is John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus, coming to announce his arrival. Jesus starts with John the Baptist before he comes onto the scene. Now at this point, God had been silent for 400 years. Can you imagine being a part of a people group that's been exiled, oppressed, and hurt for 400 years, and your parents were waiting for someone to arrive? Your grandparents were waiting for someone to arrive. Your great, 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 great grandparents had been arrive, waiting for someone to arrive. Now we're finally about to see the moment where what the people had been waiting for is about to start happening. And Luke doesn't begin with the climactic sort of entrance you would expect him to. He begins by listing a whole bunch of rulers' names. And it's kind of tedious to read through them all. Scott somehow nailed them all. It was awesome. And as we read these, I think there's a few things we should see. Luke is a careful historian. Luke is foreshadowing conflict that is coming. You recognize some of these names. These are some of the people that will eventually kill John the Baptist and eventually kill our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you were to examine the literature here, what is the literature technique Luke is using is he's building tension with each name, slowly walking through each name. He's building a sense of building towards a climax. Now, I want you to look at the text and see what is the climax he's building towards. Where is he going with this? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysantius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the reign, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is what he's building towards. God is finally speaking again. God is finally communicating with his people again. Let us never take it lightly when God communicates. You want a reason never to miss your Bible reading in the morning? Well, God talks when you read the Bible. You want to miss out on hearing God talk? 
The way this is written sets up a contrast between all these rulers and John. On one hand, you have these authoritative rulers who care nothing about except for their own kingdoms and their own glory. And on the other hand, you have poor John the Baptist, the crazy guy who lived in the wilderness for 30 years, who shows up. A nobody, a nothing. And yet the authority he speaks with will be greater than the authority of all of these rulers because it's from God. And if anyone here feels like their life is out of control right now, this is what controls your life. God is what controls your life. What we're going to see is that the rulers in this book who opposed and tried to stop Jesus actually played right into God's hands and fulfilled his plan. There is an authority in his ministry. And he goes out into all the region around the Jordan. You might ask, well, what is it that God would say after 400 years of being silent? It's a long time not to say anything to anybody. What would you say after 400 years of silence? It says so right here in verse 3. He, and he went out into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's good news. That God forgives sins. All of us who struggle with guilty consciences, there's good news that God forgives sins. What John is immediately doing is he's adjusting the expectations of the crowd. Very few of them, I doubt, came out thinking that they needed their sins forgiven. Very few of them thought, this is my biggest problem. They had political concerns. They had family concerns. They had girlfriend problems. They had money problems. They had neighbors they were disagreeing with. I want you to ask yourself right now, what is the biggest problem you have? Not, not the Sunday school answer. But what is the problem you think the most about day in and day out? That's what you think your biggest problem is. When John says that he came proclaiming a baptism for the repentance of sins, he is saying, stop where you're at, and remember right now that your biggest problem is you have sinned against the holy God. That is the biggest problem any of us has right now. And if Jesus has forgiven your sins, then it's the biggest problem that God has fixed for you and keeps fixing moment by moment. And so you shouldn't stop thinking about it. And he didn't just send John with a bunch of words to tell people. He said, I have a symbol for you. You're going to baptize people. And I wish we could baptize someone today to show this. We don't have any water. But baptism is a beautiful picture that God gave us of his sin-forgiving work. If I were to baptize someone today, you would come up, and we would stand in the water together, and whoever was baptizing you would lower you backwards into the water. And it would be like you were being laid down in grave. The old you would be being put to death. The old sinner you used to be would be dying. And when you get pulled from the water and everyone would cheer and shout for you, it would be because it's a picture of you coming out of the grave and being a new person who's a child of God. And baptism is also a picture of how just how water washes and cleanses your dirt and grime off your body. Jesus' blood washes and cleans our souls of all of its sin to the deepest level. I've talked to a lot of people before who have said, I struggle to believe God loves me. The Bible says he does, but our hearts aren't there. I struggle to believe God loves me. 
Baptism is a picture for you to help show you that your sins are forgiven. And that God does love you and accept you as you are. If you've come to him in faith. If anyone here right now is struggling to believe that God loves you, I want to invite you to remember the moment you were baptized. That's when God was saying, especially to you, I love you and accept you, child. Now, John didn't come out of nowhere. And what I mean by that is God didn't spontaneously call him without ever predicting that he would come. In fact, the prophet Isaiah talked about John over 700 years before he ever showed up. It was always God's plan to send a prophet to preach that Christ would come. And as we read through the Gospel of Luke, we find out that he loves Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 must be his favorite chapter in the Bible. And I can see why. Because it's one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of all that the Messiah is going to come and do for us. And in the midst of Isaiah 40, we get to see a picture of John the Baptist. So what does Luke say in verse 4? As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be laid low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. This voice he's talking about could be what the Jewish people were reading and hoping for during the years of silence. God is going to talk to us again. And here he is talking to him. What does God want to say now that he's finally speaking? He talks about ways and paths and valleys and mountains and crooked places. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? What is all of this language about? This is language that is referring to the construction of a highway. <coughs> And we have highways everywhere. They didn't back then. If you're trying to get from one place to another, a highway that's safe and secure and you can travel on is a gigantic deal. And the best news in these verses is this doesn't say prepare the way for the people or the donkey. It says prepare the way for the Lord. What John the Baptist is talking about is God is coming to you. When Jesus comes to you, God is coming to you. That's really good news if you have a lot of hardship in your life. That's really good news if you're a sinner. I really don't think that in our context we know how to anticipate a king. We live in such political freedom, such prosperity. In a lot of ways, life is really, really good here. But for them, for the Jewish people, for their king to come back would mean that they would be freed from slavery, free from shame, free from being ruled by other people. And it would all be a picture of their hearts being set free to know and love God. I tried to think of a picture, an example of what this could be like. I love the movie Robin Hood. You know the one with the foxes that shoot arrows at each other? Th things aren't good in Nottingham, or however you say it. And what are they waiting around for? They're waiting for King Richard the Lionhearted to come back and put all things right. And that's their hope when they hear a king is coming on the highway who is God. And this is a reminder that for those of us who feel like, why won't God act in my life? He will. You have to be patient. But he is the God who comes to his people. This is characteristic of him. 
this is what he shows us in this text. And I love how it talks about him blowing through mountains and raising up valleys. He's going to overcome every obstacle there is in the way to get to you. There is not an obstacle that contain our God from getting to you to help you. If any of you ever driven on the Highway 35 up by Lake Superior, there are tunnels they blew right through mountains. Raised up valleys for that road to be on. They went through obstacles to get that road to go all the way up north. And God's saying, I'm going to do something similar to get to you. And then there's that phrase, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. So the question that I had now as I was looking at and reading the text is what possible obstacle is there in the way of God? Can you imagine an obstacle that could be in the way of God? What could these verses possibly be referring to? And now as we move to the message of John the Baptist, he's going to show us what this obstacle is. Please take a look with me at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's a heavy word. Why would Jesus call these people a brood of vipers? Why would John the Baptist call these people a brood of vipers? Was he just being mean to them? Was he calling them ugly, kind of like a snake is ugly? By our standards and characteristics, we tend to think, John, that wasn't very loving. But actually, it's the most loving thing he could have said. One pastor said, hard truth makes soft people. And that's what John's doing. He's trying to soften their hearts and trying to remove the obstacles so that God could come to them. What is this obstacle? So if you read the Bible, you'll find that a snake shows up in the Bible before. A snake shows up in the Garden of Eden. In fact, a snake is the image we see in the Bible of what Satan, the form the deceiver takes. And Satan was the first rebel against God. His rebellion brought about the curse and pain through Adam and Eve's rebellion that we experience today. And what John the Baptist is saying, that you people in the crowds, you have the same rebellion in your heart that the devil does. The same opposition to God is in your heart. The same unrepentance is in your heart. This is the one obstacle, the one and only obstacle that will keep God from saving someone is if they persist in unrepentance, if they persist in rebellion, if they persist in unbelief. Thank you. I, my mouth is dry. The obstacle... Now, now, if you're like me, when something goes wrong, you love to blame other people. So many of us want to say the situation is a problem, my family is the problem, my financial situation is the problem, my habits are the problem, and John the Baptist is saying, no, your heart is the problem. That is the obstacle that's keeping God from coming to you, and you need to see this. You need to see this. This obstacle cannot be removed until we identify it. Nobody discovers on their own that their heart is broken. 
because we're always hiding from our brokenness, aren't we? No one wants to talk about this. And then John asks another question. He says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And now things get even more serious. John is saying to the crowd that you are under wrath. And in this crowd, there were all kinds of people. There were religious people. There were unreligious people. There were rich people. There were poor people. There were probably some Jews and probably some Gentiles. Which means that this crowd is indicative of humanity. Which means that the same wrath that hung over their heads hangs over ours. The wrath of God. What is that? The wrath of God is God's holy punishment against sin. I want to remind everyone that God is more holy than we could ever imagine. Pick any one of us in this room. He's not like us. Pick the best person in the room. He's not like that person. God never lies. God always loves. God always rejoices. God always has perfect community. God never cheats. He never envies. He never hurts. He never does violence unless it's righteous. And all of us fall short of him in a thousand different ways every other day, every day. And when we die, or when he comes back, we will experience the wrath of God unless we have a savior. That's John's message to the crowd. The wrath of God is coming. Who warned you to flee from this wrath? He doesn't say, walk away from the wrath. Ignore the wrath. Flee from the wrath. Unless any of us feel despair right now, John the Baptist has great, great news. Take a look at verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That word repentance is an important word. It's a religious word. It's a religious sounding word that I'm sure you've heard a thousand times if you're a churchgoer. But maybe you wouldn't know how to explain it to someone. How would you explain repentance? Think about it for a moment. If you had to explain it to someone who'd never read the Bible before or never been to church before. Repentance. Repentance is the turning away from love and allegiance to sin and the world to love and allegiance to God. It's the inward renewal of our hearts that results in new ways of acting and living. I mentioned earlier that the text talks about a king who is coming. A king. The people who were a brood of vipers were in rebellion against that king. All of us, maybe now or at some point in our life, lived in rebellion against that king. To repent is to embrace the rule of the king. This is what we looked like before we met Jesus against God, shaking our fists at him. This is what repentance looks like if you're having trouble understanding what it is. To come before God, you bow your knee, and you say, he is worthy. That is biblical repentance. And while it's a change of your heart towards God, it overflows into new ways of living 
where your sin is put to death. No, you will, you will never put all your sin to death. But if you're repenting, you will put your sin to death. Now, what I, what I hope you're thinking of is, Ross, that's a nice definition. But show me a verse. Show me a verse or stop talking to me. Please take a look at Acts 26.20. I'll just read it so you don't have to flip there because it's, it's a little ways away. But Paul declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Turn to God. That's what I'm saying repentance is. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That is John's answer for how we flee the wrath of God is repentance. Repenting is how we flee the wrath of God. If you will not surrender to this king and embrace this king and love this king and then live a life of obedience to this king, you are under the wrath of God. One question you might be asking me is, Ross, I thought the Bible says if you believe you're saved, not if you repent, if you have faith in Jesus, you're saved. And actually, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. They're a horse and carriage. When you turn away from your sin, with your allegiance to it and your love for it, and you turn to Jesus with an allegiance and a love to him, one of the things you do is believe in him and trust in him as the Savior who did everything in your place, and he forgives you. Amen. Here's another verse I can share with you to illustrate this point. Acts 19.4. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's actually interpreting these very words from this text. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When he, John was telling the people to repent, he was telling them to believe. They're so close, they're almost interchangeable. Repentance and belief go together. One good question to ask is, how do I know if I've repented? How do I know? And now we're going to read the rest of the sentence. I just focused on one word. Let's read the whole sentence. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits. I love that word, fruits. Especially after I haven't eaten in a week. We always go to the apple orchard in the fall because it's awesome. There's trees with fruit on them. And we can pick it off and eat it, and it's juicy. This is the image God used. You, when you eat an apple and it's all diseased, or you find a tree and there's just no apples on it, assuming no one's picked it yet, it shows you that this tree is bad. When you find a tree and it's got the big, thick honey golds on it, that's a good tree. Yes. Now, the apples didn't make the tree good. I could go tape all kinds of apples on a tree that's sick and diseased, and it wouldn't be any less sick and diseased when I'm done. So I'm not trying to say that you need to fake it or that you can change your heart by just changing the way you live. What I'm saying is that when you repent, when your allegiance genuinely turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know and other people will know. You will not be the same person you used to be. And I can look out here and I can see people who aren't the same person they used to be. And I hope that we keep changing and becoming like Jesus.
Because one thing that I want to say, I'm going to invite unbelievers to repent and believe at some point, but to believers, to believers who trust in Jesus, repentance is not something that you needed to do only when you first repented and believed in Jesus. We need to repent every day. Every single day, the Lord Jesus is calling us to repent. Every single way, there's ways our heart turns cold and turns away from him, and we need to turn back to him. One of the greatest Bible teachers, Martin Luther, said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Invite you to begin examining yourself as I'm preaching. Where do you need to repent today? Where do you need to repent today? And John knows exactly where our hearts are going to go. Because we run and hide from our need to repent. In repenting, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to turn and you have to hate your sin. That's not something we enjoy doing. So what did he say next to the Jewish people? What did he say next? He said, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What is that? Abraham was the first Jewish person, the, the person the Lord used to make the Jewish people. He made all kinds of promises to him, including that he would have offspring, and his offspring would inherit the earth. And these Jewish people, these descendants of his, were saying, we don't need to repent. We don't need to repent. We're Abraham's offspring. In other words, we don't need God. He needs us. And what John the Baptist says is, do you know how foolish that sounds? I wish I had a rock right now. If I did, pretend it's in my hand. He says, I can take this rock and turn it into a worshiper of me. If any one of us believes for a moment that God needs us, it's the wrong thing. We need God. We need God. And if you see what they did is they put on a false mask to hide from God. They put on a false identity that hid their need for repentance. Oh, we're not wicked people. I'm not a bad person. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I don't need to repent. My heart's okay. I'm a descendant of Abraham. And if you're anything like me, you have or are wearing a mask. There is some way that we're hiding from God, telling ourselves that we're righteous and we don't need to repent when we do. What is the mask that you wear the most often? What is the mask? It could be that you go to church and you were baptized. It could be that you've lived a life of good works and sacrifice. It could be that your parents think you are a perfect child. Or that you think you're the perfect parent. For me, I can tell myself, Ross, man, look at all the praying you do. You're a pastor. You don't need to repent, do you? It's a mask. And verse 9 brings home John's point. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. I said before that the wrath of God is coming. 
It's like an axe that's laid beside a tree, ready to cut it down. Went axe throwing with Joel Schumann for his bachelor party a few weeks ago. These things are deadly weapons. It's scary to think that any one of us is a heartbeat away from eternity at any single moment. That's what we're facing. And some of you, when you hear me say that, is, this God sounds mean. Why would I want to repent to him? Why would I want to repent to a God that says something that's so strong, so dangerous sounding? And my answer is because he's good. He's good. If you remember, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. That's who he's coming to tell people about. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to hang on the cross and the axe stroke that I deserve, that all of us deserve. He took it. That's how we can know God is good. That's how we can know God will forgive us if we repent. This isn't a mean God. It's a God who sent his own son to take the wrath in our place. Don't run away from this God. Run to this God. Those are the only two options. Wherever you're at right now, don't run away from this God. Run to this God. Here's what my favorite Bible teacher, John Calvin, said. For a good part of men, in order to escape the wrath of God, withdraw themselves from his guidance and authority. But all that the sinner gains by fleeing from God is to provoke more and more the wrath of God against him. I don't want that for anyone. I don't want that for anyone. I want everyone in this room to repent and have life. Anyone here who's never repented before, who's never believed in Jesus before, today's the day you can meet him and have your sins forgiven. Today's the day that the wrath of God could be removed from you. So come talk to me. Come talk to anyone in this room. It is not worth it at all to wait. It is not worth it at all to wait when you never know. You never know if today is your last day or if Jesus will come back tomorrow. My main point today is let us repent daily so that we can have more of God. That's what I want for you. I want more of God for you. You remember earlier in the passage, it was talking about the king who is coming to us. The obstacle is our own unrepentance. To repent is to prepare your heart to receive more of God. And there's no example in the Bible of someone repenting who doesn't get more of God and doesn't get mercy from God you'll read about some of the most despicable kings in the Old Testament. They killed little kids. And when they repented, God, God welcomes that. You might say, this sounds like a narrow message, Ross. This sounds like something that is exclusivist. Saying this is the only way. Actually, this is a scandalously open way for all people. Verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Pharisees' way of religious Jews can be saved is a tame gospel. That's a very tame message. Anyone can say, yeah, that sounds fine. Jesus' way is shocking. We cannot deny the kingdom of God to anyone who repents. If an ISIS terrorist walked in that door into this room right now or a white supremacist neo-nazi walked into this room right now and they repented they would be as much a child of god as me and i would have be obligated to love and accept them as brother in christ this is a scandalous gospel that will shock and offend people because 
there's no righteous deed you can do to commend yourself. This gospel shocks those who have their lives together because they think they deserve it. And Jesus shows us by saving the worst sinners that no one deserves it. I can save whoever I want. I've tasted some days when my, my fellowship with God is the closest, sometimes, after I have the worst falls and I repent and come to him. There's another application I have for you. Never wait to repent. Don't wait until you clean yourself up to repent. Don't sin and go through a period of penitence before you repent. Because of Jesus, God is ready to welcome you back right now. That's not to say there won't be consequences for sin. That's only to say God's love is ready to receive you back. Now, I want to tie all this together. I said a lot. I want to tie all this together and answer my question, what do I do when I'm stuck? What do I do when I feel like I can't repent? I have two things for you. The first is to remember the goodness of God. I promise you, as long as you have some sort of distrust of God or doubt of God or feeling in your heart that God's not good, he's not really going to receive me, I'm going to reject him before he rejects me. We're going to put up a wall. But if the gospel shows us anything, is that God is good and we can trust him and come to him. Here's Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume, that word presume reminds me of the religious Pharisees. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Reflect on the sufferings of Christ. We don't have a Messiah who was triumphant in his first coming. We have a bloodied Messiah. When is the last time you reflected on the fact that you have a bloodied Messiah? When that's the case, there's no sinner he won't receive back to him. Meditate and remember the goodness of God so that you can repent, so that you won't flee from him. Instead, you'll flee to him. Way to remember the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming quickly upon the sons of disobedience. If you've never trusted in Jesus, please don't leave this room. You are in mortal danger. And if you are a sinner, who, a saint who is stuck in a habitual pattern of sin, don't, do not keep sinning repetitively, habitually, characteristically, until you show that you never actually believed in the first place. Put it to death today. It says right here, every tree that, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I said earlier that repentance is an inward transformation that results in outward change. Beautiful fruits. God is going to inspect the fruits to see, was there an inward change at all, or are you just faking it? Repent today if you're a believer by remembering that the wrath of God will come upon you if you don't repent. And now we have four more verses. And no time at all. I really want to invite you guys to tune in to our, our midweek podcast this week. I think these verses are profound. They talk about what repentance looks like with your money and possessions. If you didn't know your money, your, one of the things your heart is tied the closest to is your money and possessions, and they show where your heart is at just about more than anything. In other words, if someone could get a hold of your bank statements and that's all they knew about you, they should be able to tell you're a Christian. And we're going to talk about what generosity looks like and how to handle money in the 21st century because it looks a little different from back then. 
But if you want to know how to bear fruit and how you use your money and resources, tune in because we're going to have a discussion about that. I also want to read a quote by Rosaria Butterfield about how much of a miracle repentance is. What difference and change it makes in our lives and in our community. This is what she writes in her book, The Gospel Comes with House Key. Paul knows how deep repentance goes, how it undoes a sinner and remakes him, and how it leaves him raw, vulnerable, and transparent. I imagine Paul, years after the Lord had made him an apostle, years after his days of slaughtering Christians for religious zeal, breaking bread with a fellow believer and recognizing something in the shape of an eye or the turning of a nose or the tone of a laugh or cry. I also imagine the horror that would have seized him, stopped him, made him grasp for breath. I can feel the recognition, that eye, that nose, that voice, so similar to someone he had murdered. Paul may have found himself at the table fellowship with the children of the faithful mother that he had killed in his pharisaical zeal. Repentance changes everything. Through it, you become something you can never imagine. And repentance is a gift from God. It cannot be manufactured or fixed. The immense beauty of repentance is only a reflection of the immense beauty of Jesus. The reason repentance matters and it's glorious is because Christ matters and is glorious and he died on the cross to give it to us. So when we see the fruits of repentance in our community, not to us, not to us, but to him be the glory. When a little boy in our congregation who we've been praying for repents, who gets the glory? When a man in a prison who has a meth addiction repents, who gets the glory? If we lose sight of that, we're going to lose sight of repentance. So that's why I want to close. Repentance is about the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him. Dear Jesus, we thank you that we've repented of being angry. And I ask that someone new would repent right now. And I pray that always and every day, whenever a life changes, we would only worship you who is worthy. Amen.